0: Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Internationalist Higher Education Matters, a podcast from the Association of Commonwealth Universities. I'm Natasha Lockham. In this series we're looking at the responsibility of universities to confront both the past and the present. Who gets to learn and who gets to teach in today's society where the legacy of empire is still an open and often painful issue? Universities are places of learning and of transformation and they play a critical role in creating open and fairer societies but they also reflect the world in which they operate, and they can even reinforce inequalities. In today's episode, we're asking, how can the curriculum be authentic to where it's taught? Depending on the country, you might be talking about decolonising or indigenising the curriculum. Curricula, bodies of knowledge basically, tend to be modelled on templates of learning that have usually originated in the so-called West. But whose knowledge counts, and who gets to decide this? Today I'm joined by two guests who will help me explore this important issue. Mira Sabaratnam is Senior Lecturer in International Relations at SOAS, University of London in the UK, and Chair of the Decolonising SOAS Working Group. Welcome, Mira, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. And our second guest is Marg Forster, Associate Head of the School of Māori Knowledge, Te Putahi Atoi, at Massey University in New Zealand. Hello to you, Margaret.
1: Ate nakwi.
0: Thank you both for joining us. I think it just highlights what a global issue it is, the fact that it's breakfast time for Mira and myself in the UK. And Marg, what time is it in New Zealand? Uh, time to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> 9.40. That is, yeah, that is late. <laughs> um, Marg, actually, I'll come to you first. Um, the The concept of indigenising the curriculum um, has been around in New Zealand, I understand, for sort of 30 to 40 years. Um what has changed in that time? And can you give us a practical example of what an, an indigenized curriculum looks like?
1: I think one way to answer that is probably to talk about my own experiences in the university. So I was a student back in the early 1990s. And at that stage, I was studying science at university. And there was no indigenous content in the curriculum at that particular stage. If you jump forward about a decade, that's when I started working as a uh, Māori researcher at Massey University. I entered into a department that um, was a school of Māori studies, so everything we teach is based on uh, Māori culture, Māori language, um, our ways of thinking, our ways of knowing. Having said that, other disciplines or other schools outside of our particular department, uh, you you would have been hard-pressed to find any Indigenous content in a lot of that material. Jumping forward to today, we are increasingly seeing indigenisation of um, other curricula So um, this year, we started teaching Māori knowledge in a core science programme. A couple of years ago, we started teaching Māori knowledge and Māori culture into social work programmes and Bachelor of Health Science. So we're starting to see an increase in Indigenous content. But more importantly, I think we're starting to see an increase in Māori scholars in other disciplines, and I think that's what's pushing the Māori content.
0: And Mira, I mean, compared to, to universities in New Zealand, and I think the example that Mark's given of kind of, of, of what's happening at Massey, SOAS is really kind of at the start of the process. The Decolonising SOAS Working Group was set up in 2016. Um, what, what sort of change are you working towards? Like, what, thinking about that kind of process that Marge has spoke about, like, what would you hope to see, you know, in 30 to 40 years time?
2: So it's partly true to say that we're at the start of that process. I think at SOAS, because we've been thinking about the relations, particularly between Britain and Asia, Africa and the Middle East for a century, it's clear that sort of anti-colonial or post-colonial thinking has been a necessary part of that story uh, for almost all of that time. What we've seen in recent years is a reinvigoration of that idea and specifically driven by students and specifically driven by students in this moment. It's, I think it's about an intensification and a re-energizing of an underlying kind of idea. But I think what we'd What's interesting at this particular present moment in higher education um, in the UK is that the numbers and the kinds of students going to university have expanded massively in the last kind of 10 to 20 years. So um, the university is a much more diverse place. There's many more scholars of colour and international scholars that are part of that. And so the absences in the curriculum and its narrowness just becomes more obvious to everybody concerned. And so what we're really trying to do is challenge that narrowness and say that universities and well, in education generally has to be not just teaching from one standpoint, but, but teaching from multiple standpoints. And particularly in the UK, where I think it's fair to say that that narrow vision and that kind of hierarchical attitude towards the rest of the world has been the dominant mode of thinking for a long time, that's a specific thing that we need to challenge. And you've both,
0: it's interesting because you've both touched upon this idea of people really sort of helping to drive the change. So Mira, you spoke about students, Marg, this idea of kind of, you know, Maori scholars now, you're seeing more of them and they're coming to the fore and they're helping to kind of develop the knowledge and and, and bring that to the fore. I think if you're seeing kind of the motivations you know you're coming from student it's coming from students it's coming from scholars in the subject how are you and then kind of getting a whole institution behind it I guess that's that's the next phase is you move it from perhaps a niche what might be seen as a niche concern to actually an institution-wide topic. Mark can I ask you for your thoughts on that?
1: Definitely. I think in a New Zealand context anyway, we've had we've had quite a few years at having a go at this. So our School of Māori Studies, or what, what we now call School of Māori Knowledge, it was first established way back in um, 1970s by some very distinguished Māori scholars. In Māori and express our thoughts should not be denied that right. Not so much whether this particular petition succeeds, whether it is possible to say the language. They really did the hard fight um, having to argue that Māori knowledge is actually a, a subject, an academic subject and it should um, have its own place within the academic institution. Um, so then I think as successive generations have come in we've all put our own mark on the curriculum and what counts as, in our case, Māori knowledge um, and how we teach it. And while we have taught it in one particular corner of the university, if you like, or we like to think of it as the centre of the university. Over time, I think we've started branching out into other disciplines and if you, you know, it's really like colonising other spaces. Um, So it has been part of that political project for us of being able to be heard and for our knowledge to have a a same kind of standing beside other ways of knowing. So a big part of that, I think, has been linked to that resistance kind of movement, um, reclaiming Māori rights in New Zealand, um, particularly our rights around the Treaty of Waitangi um, and what that means for the standing of our own ways of thinking, our own knowledge in this space. And can you give
0: us an example? You spoke about branching out and I guess what that means, how that's come into play in practice. What has that meant when, you're, I guess, the influence, you've really seen the influence spread?
1: So Marie writes. Uh, our political rights, um, our use of our language, our use of our knowledge and our culture. It has to be a central and integral part of the university, so not just an add-on to another subject. So we've had lots of conversations between Māori, non-Māori, Māori knowledge Uh, academic subject area and a whole lot of other academic subjects talking about how do we how do we authentically increase the mighty content in a number of our courses and how do we do that in a way so we use this phrase mana enhancing so how do we do it in an empowering way in a way that recognizes that that knowledge base actually originates um, in the land and in our communities so it doesn't automatically transfer well to an academic setting uh, and also recognizing our colonial past and the power dynamics that, that kind of sit in that space. So there's a whole lot of things there to untangle if we're actually going to be able to use Māori knowledge in a way that's mana enhancing or empowering uh, for our people because first and foremost our knowledge is for our people and our communities. It's not for academia. So we, we spend a lot of time talking with other disciplines about, you know, what, what is the goal from their perspective? And then we talk about things like, well, you know, is it appropriate for non-Māori to be delivering mighty content? And my answer there would be no. Um, we actually need our own mighty scholars in front of our students. I, I think that does a couple of things. It allows us to maintain what we call a kaitiaki or a guardianship role over our knowledge. But I think more importantly, it allows us to put role models up in front of our students.
0: That that phrase, you know, our knowledge is for our people and our community, I think is so, is so powerful. And I can see that, although I don't I wouldn't claim to know a lot about it, you know, from what I understand about the Murray culture as you said that's that's not just a saying, that's very much a lived it's it's a belief that's put into practice. Mira, how does that that as I say that phrase our knowledge is for our people and our community reflecting on I suppose what's what's happening at SOAS and you spoke about you know in the UK higher education space it's it's a different context. What are your thoughts on on that and I guess how how the process compares?
2: So I think it's important to say that the context that um, Marx's talking about is, in some ways, the sort of uh, mirror image of what we've got in the u k. So Marx is in a settler colonial space where the displacement and the erasure of indigenous knowledges has been central to the to the dynamic over a number of centuries, whereas in the u k you're sort of in the seat of power, right? in the seat of empire or at least the previous seat of empire. And so the issue that we have is a kind of problem of defining. Britishness or Englishness by whiteness and by a particular relationship to that centre. So when we're talking about decolonising, what we're trying to do is transform this kind of hierarchical way of thinking into a more democratic way of thinking, a more inclusive way of thinking. So one of the conversations that we often end up having in the UK is, are you saying that only... Black people can write about Africa, or only people of Middle Eastern descent can write about the Middle East. We're not saying that, right? What we're saying is two things. One, it's important to have role models from around the world, so we understand that. But two, there is a standpoint that comes from being grounded in a space which makes your perspective on things different from if you're studying it from afar right? The history of studying Asia, Africa and the Middle East and and often Latin America as well is one of Northern scholars studying it from a very distance way without having to live in and negotiate those spaces and often coming to it with a set of preconceptions and stereotypes and theories. So the challenge uh, for us is to think about how to learn about the world not to know as in like to dominate it but how to learn about the world and to cultivate a mode of engagement which is respectful and democratic and critical and rigorous and all all of that but we still of course have all these structures which are heavily concentrated in the west journal publishing university rankings all of these things that um, constitute the hierarchies
0: just thinking about that point about journals and this idea of—I think it's fair to say that academia, kind of, that's that's at the hub of it, right? This idea of journals and as the the me- the mechanism, as it were, for 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 knowledge to be shared, transmitted, and I think there's, this, you know, once it's in a journal, then it's it's real knowledge. I think that's fair to say that's sort of how the concept works. Mark, what what does that mean in the context of Maori knowledge and and how and and being able to kind of push that forward?
1: Yeah, it, it's. It's a huge issue in the sense that all of us are are ranked as far as our research and teaching goes. Um, And for a while there, it was unfortunate that rankings were based on journals, particularly international ones, highly ranked, which don't or have not in the past had that conversation with Indigenous knowledge, have not really acknowledged or recognised the way we think and the way we write. Uh, we have kind of gotten around that a little bit by developing our own journals, so Alternative is probably um, one of the more well-known ones, so creating spaces for Māori scholars to publish. But we're also moving into a system in uh, New Zealand where well, we're trying to place more emphasis on the impact of research, its impact on our communities, on development and on helping to resolve pressing social issues. and trying to, I guess it's it's kind of racked a little bit higher than all of the publications. Not that publications aren't important, and there's a lot of Māori scholars publishing in a whole lot of other spaces, but we're also looking for other ways to measure performance. So when I think of measures of, of good research, I think of things like long-term relationships with communities where you're continually going back and engaging in different research projects. So it kind of shows that there's a level of trust there. It shows that your research is relevant um, to those people and to the issues that have been identified um, by those people. I also think another key measurement of um, success is our ability to mentor um, new and emerging scholars, and to build that workforce, and then probably third would be that networking and sharing of different ways of using our knowledge in contemporary context, so that we keep growing and developing what we know, so it doesn't kind of stagnate.
0: Mira, I know that kind of um, obviously, so us isn't a scientific institution as such, but that approach does that does that sound familiar? I guess of kind of using the sort of policies to help drive change? And, and if so, kind of what challenges do you see with that?
2: So I suppose there's two things driving the changes at SOAS, and I think more widely in the UK, and um, lots of institutions now are trying to do something a bit like this. And I think of these things as, on the one hand, sort of quality and quality assurance, and then the other thing is equality legislation and, and frameworks. So in terms of the quality assurance, one of the things that we've tried to do in SOAS is build in our decolonizing sensibilities into our quality assurance. When students do their evaluations of modules, one of the things that they're asked is how inclusive was the was the curriculum or how diverse was it? And how and, and did the teaching methods help you feel included? Uh, It's not like a box ticking exercise where it's like, how many scholars of colour did you have on this module and this module and this module? Uh, We also ask program conveners to reflect in their annual reviews of their programs. Have they used the toolkit that we developed for program and module conveners? And there's also training going on. So I think one of the key issues in the UK, not so much at SOAS, but particularly outside there, is that. People do lack basic literacy on questions like uh, race and racism, how it affects students, how it affects society, even its prevalence in society, people are very underinformed informed about. Uh, for example, if you take the um, idea that students who have experienced racism might be less willing to put up their hand or venture forward ideas because they've experienced kind of negative reactions from teachers in the past or people in the past they might engage with teaching formats that give students a more equal kind of voice in the classroom. Now, they're, they're, not une- they're not evenly taken up. And I would definitely not say that we've cracked the issue of how to deal with racism in the classroom and that we've fixed all our problems. But um, we're certainly a lot more literate about them than we were previously.
0: As you say, it's not been, you've not cracked it, it's not solved. What do you think, what's next? What is the next step in terms of making change? And do you see that as a slow process? Is it kind of incremental? Or do you think there's a big step change that could happen?
2: I think for big changes to take place, education needs to start at quite a young age. So often by the time you get to university, um, students have accumulated quite a lot of life experiences about this and that. And so uh, starting their education young in terms of thinking about how to think in a more open and um, critical and reflexive way is a very positive thing. And also, I mean, the societal change has to be there. Like, even if your university is very welcome and inclusive, but students still have differential access to housing, employment, all the rest of it, then no matter what you do in a university, it's still not going to affect those bigger issues. Thank you. Um, Mark, um, can I ask for your final thoughts then,
0: please? Just on, I guess, what's what's next for indigenizing the curriculum? Is there a next phase or...? Is this a path that you see just continuing?
1: Um, I think there is a next phase. When I look back at how we have introduced Māori knowledge into universities, I think we did it in a manner that was quite generic and there was certain types of information that we weren't ready to share. And I think we're moving into a phase now where um, I do a lot of place-based teaching. And what attracts me to that is that our local, you know, our backyard then becomes our classroom. So we can draw on the um, what we call kōrero tōkuiho or our tribal narratives from the area that I'm standing. When I kind of look around, I think of um, all the different knowledge forms that Angitani have and we try and locate our students um, and our work in that particular space. When I do my research, because I'm from another tribal area, I often use the knowledge that's associated with um, my own people um, and our own kind of community. So I I think there's, when we're talking about what is authentic, what is perhaps the future, I think it is really our own whenua, our own land, and our own um, knowledge. So it's, it's gone from that general to now specific to a particular area.
0: Thank you. I think today what has really emerged for me are kind of two elements one is the importance of people so the headline topic might be decolonizing or indigenizing the curriculum but really this is about people both in terms of driving change and helping to make that change happen but also in terms of the impact so looking at how it has the potential to have an impact on communities in terms of the research and the knowledge that's created and also for students at university and making them feel more involved and that's actually quite a nice link to our next episode which is going to look at the student body and the student experience how can we foster a sense of belonging for all students while they're at university i'd like to thank our guests for today mira sabaratnam senior lecturer in international relations at SOAS University of London, and chair of the Decolonising SOAS Working Group, and Mark Forster, associate head of the School of Māori Knowledge Te Toi, at Massey University in New Zealand. I hope you found this episode of The Internationalist, Higher Education Matters Valuable. The Association of Commonwealth Universities is committed to highlighting the issues that influence teaching and learning in our world. Please do subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts and like, comment and share the programme. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. Just search for the Association of Commonwealth Universities. Thank you for joining me, Natasha Locken. The producer is Lindsay Riley, executive producer Richard Myron and it's an Earshot Strategies production.